brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that sends 5% of your monthly plan price to your favorite charity. No contracts, nationwide coverage, risk-free guarantee. Learn more at CharityMobile.com. Blessed second Saturday in Lent, we will be returning now to what I covered last Sunday with uh, Monsignor Ronald Knox, one of the great 20th, late 19th, early 20th century theologians who famously gave us a translation of the Bible that many will find easier to read than as a traditional translation goes than, say, the Dewey Rames, although the Dewey Rames is still the gold standard, and I would never suggest otherwise. We're going to talk today about the, his concept of the faith and living in danger versus living safely. It's a, con- it's a concept that probably will take some wrapping our heads around, I think, to understand. But because the faith, many think, is a almost a call to live calmly and safely. But really, we look at the lives of the great missionaries, whether the canonized ones or just the invisible to us ones today who go to far-off places and take great personal risks to spread the gospel. They're living a very dangerous life. We know what happens to many of them. All you have to do is go look at uh, the example of St. Isaac Yogues or the um, any of the great Jesuit missionaries of the 18th century. See what happened to many of them when they came to bring the message of our Lord to the various peoples of the continent that I'm sitting on now. Or the great Benedictines before them or any other group of missionaries that you can think of. There is something interesting to be understood here. So we begin here with Monsignor Ronald Knox talking about danger versus safety. You have heard that it was said to them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whosoever shall look on a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. See Matthew chapter 5 verse 27. I was pointing out that in a previous sermon that when our Lord says he has not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, when he tells us that our justice must be abound beyond the justice of the scribes and Pharisees, he does not mean that we as Christians have got to observe a whole lot of additional regulations besides the Ten Commandments. He means that we Christians ought to have a law written not on tables of stone, but on our inmost hearts, a principle of active charity which ought to supersede the necessity for commandments. We saw how that applied to the fifth commandment, and now we see it applied to the sixth. Does our Lord mean that one immodest look is as culpable as sin of adultery? No, that is not the point. The point is that the Christian who has the Sermon on the Mount written in his heart will never need to consider whether whether there is a law against it. His love for God will have shielded him from the spark which might have caused such a conflagration. He will never find himself threatened by the proximate occasions of sin, because he will have put away from him even the remote occasion of sin as inconsistent with the imitation of Christ. Think of a ship outside the harbor at anchor. See how winds and tides drive it to and fro, how it is continually tugging at the chains that moor it. The strain is never eased for long. One faulty link, and at any moment the ship may drift out to sea. That is like a soul that is only moored by the Ten Commandments. Winds and tides of passion sweep it to and fro. Restlessly, day by day, it tugs at the chain, only just safe, exposed the moment something snaps to the perils of the open sea. And now think of a ship riding at anchor in harbor. She is moored, yes, sure enough, but how lightly she tugs at her moorings. They have hardly any work to do. The strain is so slight. That is just an image of the soul that rides on the love of Jesus Christ. The sinful impulses which such a soul feels hardly make it tug at all on the chain that binds it to God's law. There is no strain on its loyalty because it rides at rest. 
the soul that only wants to keep the commandments, wants to serve God without loving him. What a perpetual contradiction it makes of life. If one effort is to avoid mortal sin, no more. Whatever passion it can indulge, whatever gratification it can give to its lower nature, short of mortal sin, it embraces, it greedily accepts. And this passion, like a tide, sweeps it onwards, until suddenly it comes up against the Ten Commandments with a jerk, like the ship tugging at the cable that moors her. It's bad for the cable, you know, that jerk. Well, the rope holds, thank God, and immediately the soul conceives some fresh passion, sails off in some fresh direction, according to the set of the tide it drifts by. Can a life like that be a life of freedom? Can a life like that be worthy of a Christian, called by baptism to partake in the divine nature? Christ calls us to freedom. The soul that has mastered the Sermon on the Mount is not exposed to the storm of passion, because it rests on his love. But remember, in this matter of modesty, we have all to be afraid of ourselves. We have not the privilege of our Blessed Lady to be free from concupiscence. And consequently, even the soul that lives by the law of love must continually be checking, by little acts of mortification, even the slightest impulse towards the passions that might sweep it away. Whoever shall look, what a long distance it is, please God, between a careless look and an act of sin. Only a remote occasion, but even the remote occasions of sin are not for the soul that really loves Christ. They strike a false note. They are out of the picture. In all the lives of the saints, you will not find one, however angelic his purity, who fancied that because he had been so long preserved from temptation, he could take any risks even with the remote occasions of sin. And that is why our Lord Jesus Christ reinforces this warning by a direction which seems, as you first read it, to be the hardest of all the paradoxical directions he gave us. The famous admonition of our Lord to be better to suffer grave injury than to allow yourself to be to be caught up in sin by those offending parts that would cause the great injury. What can it all mean, though? Are we called upon to make any sacrifice, however heroic, sooner than run the risk of the least temptation? Surely here at least we are under a sterner law than our elder brothers before us. Surely here the law of Christ outdoes the thunders of Sinai. But no, that is not the point. The point is simply this, that a thing may be good in itself and useful in itself, and yet if for us it is an occasion of sin, we shall rule it out of our lives if we really love God. There may be some branch of study, some kind of reading, which is not in itself disgraceful, which is followed by others without danger, but if we see there is danger in it for us, then it must go. If thy right eye scandalizes thee, pluck it out. It may be a friendship which is perfectly pure and honorable in itself, which for some points of view even is good for us, braces us up and makes better men of us. Others can cultivate such friendships without any danger to themselves. And yet, if we see there is any danger in it for us, it must go. Better such injury, you see, than the affliction, the, the affliction that leads to the slow demise of the soul. But as you say, surely we are meant to develop our natures to the full. Surely the Christian vocation is not meant to warp and stunt a man's life, to dwarf his character and make him into a plaster saint of the sacristy. Mortification is all very well if mortification means making some little sacrifice here and there of things that are not at all important. But mortification cannot mean that a man should take cut a whole piece out of our life, abandon great opportunities and solid happiness for the sake of scruple. How poor the world would be if we all acted like that. I know, but it is not everyone who has your dangers. It is not everybody, therefore, who has to make your sacrifices. But if you do see that there is danger for you, do not make any mistake about what our Lord counsels. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed or lame, 
Aimed or lame, he does not seem to contemplate the possibility, does he not, that the Christian life will be an incomplete one in this direction or that? But then you wish to enter heaven through the imitation of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ entered the heaven before you, his side was wounded and his hands and feet were scarred. Do you still say that the Sermon on the Mount is too exacting? Do you still find it difficult to believe that the yoke of Christ is sweet? That is because you do not consider this, that a sacrifice is hard to make, not according to the amount it costs, but according to the spirit in which you make it. Think of a young lover going out to buy a present, and then think of a man paying his income tax. Do you not see that it is the will which makes sacrifices easy or hard? The servile Christian who would keep the Ten Commandments and no more finds common morality a millstone around his neck. Love, says the author of the imitation, feels not its burden, counts not its labor, attempts yet more than it can achieve. The law given on Sinai speaks with the thunders of authority. The Sermon on the Mount only with the whispers of love. Hard for our soft ears in this soft age, I know. It is a mark of being early on the spiritual path of perfection to merely keeping the commandments uh, to avoid sin, to avoid the, not even the near dangers, but the, to just avoid mortal sin. It is that's more the mark of spiritual maturity, of, of great advancement to be even on the watch for venial sin to try to avoid such temptations in our life. And, of course, to make those great sacrifices necessary, almost to become recluses and kind of weird in the eyes of the world. Let us be weird in the eyes of the world. Let us not ally ourselves with such fleeting phantom movements of the time, whatever they are. Let us always keep our eyes on the cross of our Lord. The Sermon on the Mount is something that the world loves because they only hear in it the things they want to hear. They don't understand the implications of it. Because if they understood the implications of it, they would not give us this group hug buddy Jesus that they keep pushing on us. The Jesus that the world accepts, but doesn't follow. One they find inoffensive, the one that they want us to follow. Follow the true blessed Lord. Our real blessed Lord is taught to us by the church. Hope this has been helpful for your Lent this year. Let me know in the comments what you think of all this, and hit like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps too. And thanks to the patrons of this channel for their support of this channel. It's their support that allows me to find these old tomes by these old great minds of the church to bring to you on these weekends, sometimes at great cost. But their support makes it possible. So thank you to them. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.